Dispatch Podcast, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust. Uh, for the first time, this is your host, Joseph Ricky, sitting alongside my colleague and co-host, Sheila Mulliken. Sheila, it is great to be back alongside of you. The only thing we've done so far together is we've kind of done that little... The little uh, transition, <laughs> sort of, yeah. So yeah. now we're official, I guess. I guess as, as hosts, we now have to kind of get into what we're going to talk about on uh, the first, our first full episode all mm-hmm. on our own. Uh, the training wheels are very much still on right mm-hmm. now. So we ask everybody's patience <laughs> as we kind of get our feet under us. Uh, so I think this being, uh, these episodes will kind of pair together the, some of what we're trying to do as we uh, refocus the mission of the podcast is to kind of get back to the stories that we tell every day here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the stories that we've really become so very invested in is the story of the United States Colored Troops, mm-hmm. uh, not only just because of the Fuller Story Monument, uh, which was part of the Battle Franklin Trust Initiative, and that we'll have an episode on that upcoming, but the other part of it, too, is that we have an, an immediate tie-in and a reference to the United States Colored Troops now with our site, Ripavilla. So that's what we're going to dedicate these first two episodes to, is the role of the United States Colored Troops and sort of some of the stories that we tell on tour and then sort of their evolution because by the end of the American Civil War, after four years, 189,000 African-American men will have fought in the United States Army, not only to, as we'll talk about, secure their own freedom, but to destroy slavery and gain citizenship for themselves. Exactly. We're going to dive into that. You can probably get us started (laughs) talking a little bit about the whole concept of United States Colored Troop Soldiers, that doesn't, it doesn't start in the beginning. It gets off kind of to a bumpy start, and yeah. I guess it becomes official with the Emancipation Proclamation. Right. It, it begins really right before even Lincoln's inauguration. It starts with Major General David Hunter. He's in Port Royal, South Carolina. And what he starts to do as war seems like it's in the forecast, and the war clouds are gathering, in it, and we're starting to see southern states begin to secede, Hunter goes around uh, the area and starts to enlist uh, African-American men, uh, black men, into regiments, but he can't necessarily do that. And that's exactly what uh, Congress will tell him and the War Department will tell him, is that he has to disband what he calls the 1st South Carolina Volunteers or Hunters Regiment. This sort of starts to grow, though, this idea that black men could be enlisted into the Army starts to take root here and there, but it really won't come until after uh, Benjamin Butler mm-hmm. uh, and his Confiscation Act uh, after he gets into uh, Fortress Monroe, May 1861 or so. Three escaped slaves come to Butler, and they plead their case, and Butler declares uh, that they are, they are considered contraband of war because basically what those enslaved men tell him is that they were going to be shipped south to be put to work uh, doing labor for the Confederate government, and Butler pretty quickly uh, realizes that if you can take away enslaved laborers from the Confederacy, you will deprive them of an element of their war-making capability. So it's exactly. he's thinking on a much larger level already, and this is so early on in the war. Most people are thinking 90 days, one great big battle. Butler is there seeing sort of the longevity of mm-hmm. this thing. Um, then uh, Congress will actually adopt the 1862 Confiscation Act, And it reinforces uh, sort of these positions that federal forces were basically forbidden from returning escaped slaves back to uh, southern states or back to slaveholders, even if slaveholders came to them and demanded them, weren't allowed to uh, return those men, women, and children under the 
the confiscation act. Well, because they're resources. So it's almost right. like taking a munitions factory or destroying railroad. Anything that can keep uh, your enemy from having the resources that he needs, and this is a resource. So it makes perfectly good sense. Then the real kicker is in September of 1862, President Abraham Lincoln announces a preliminary emancipation proclamation. It's not necessarily just the Emancipation Proclamation, though, that makes their, these uh, black men's enlistment possible. The Emancipation Proclamation repeals the Militia Act of 1792, which had banned black men from being soldiers. Mm-hmm. So now we get the passing of the, or the announcement and then the implementation of the Emancipation Proclamation January 1st, 1863. And from that point forward, black men will be allowed to join the United States Army. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll see this almost biblical exodus, if you would, uh, of men escaping plantations, or freedmen joining the U.S. Army, and why join? I think maybe if you want to touch on that, is, is why do these men join? Why do they go off to war? Right. Well, obviously, these are men who are not even citizens yet. They're not allowed to testify in a court of law, um, and yet they make this decision, and they make this decision, I think, with a view to the future. Again, they're thinking about their families. They're thinking about men and women who are as yet unborn, and they get to make a contribution to this. And we know some of those folks, specifically from Ripavilla, for example, there are uh, three young men who run away from Ripavilla and go to Columbia and join the 12th United States Colored Troops. They're going to be primarily garrison soldiers, garrison troops at Nashville, um, but in December of 1864, they will participate, two of those three, in the Battle of Nashville, both Joshua and Isaac Chairs. And, you know, George Henry Thomas, who was sent back to mount the defense there at Nashville, was skeptical about using uh, black troops in the fighting. But once he saw their valor, particularly uh, they were distinguished themselves in the attack on Peach Orchard Hill, after he saw their valor, he said, gentlemen, the question is settled. Negro soldiers will fight. And there's a, there's a man who's fighting in, uh, that participates in that battle, Sergeant Major Daniel Atwood. He was a part of the 100th USCT, and he said of that battle, it was the first time in the memorable history of the Army of the Cumberland that the blood of black and white men flowed freely together for one common cause for a country's freedom and independence. Each was cheered on to victory by the cooperation of the other. I ask, is there not something in this over which to rejoice and be proud? And uh, Joshua, although he dies shortly after the war, his mother applies for a pension, and her, her daughters are eventually awarded that p- pension on his behalf. Sometimes they're doing it for freedom. Sometimes they're doing it um, for dignity, simply. Mm-hmm. And Grant talks about this, too, because he, as he sees these men begin to take positions in the Army, he said, you know, the next thing that's going to happen is that they will be given a ballot, and they will actually be given a voice in the government. There was another chair slave that ran away, but he was a camp slave. He had been taken with Nat when Nat went away to war. His name was Jerry, and it was his job to look after Nat's um, to do his cooking, to do his laundry, look after his horses. Nat took a whole wagon of supplies with him when he went off to war, and so it's Jerry's job to look after all that. Well, he's eventually done, and so he runs away and joins the 111th USCT troops at Pulaski. He's captured at Sulphur Trestle, and of course, by this point in the war, it is not the policy 
of the Confederate government to treat African-American men as prisoners of war. So they are either sold back into slavery or they're put to work doing hard labor, and that's what happens to most of these guys from Sulphur Trestle. They're sitting down to Mobile Bay to construct fortifications. So he's there um, for the rest of the war, and he musters out in 1866. He comes back to Tennessee, not to Murray County. He has a farm in Murfreesboro, and by 1920 actually owns that farm free and clear, mortgage-free. And he applies for a pension in 1915, and when he does, William Chairs actually submits a letter on his behalf, which says, To whom it may concern Jerry Chairs, colored, belonged to my father, N.F. Chairs, who was major of the 3rd Tennessee Infantry. Jerry cooked for my father and cared for his horses. He was a grown man then. Jerry stole my father's horse and joined the Yankee Army. I do not know his exact age, but I do know he's over 70 years old. He was a faithful good Negro in the Rebel Army as a cook, and from which I've heard he was a valuable man in the U.S. Army after he deserted the Rebels and went to the Yankees. He stayed with the U.S. Army till the close of the war. I have not seen Jerry in 40 years. I have heard and believe it is true that he was afraid at the close of the war to come home because he knew he stole the best horse in Tennessee, my father's saddle horse, old Henry, and took him and turned him over to the Yankees. If there is an old Negro in the state who is entitled to a pension, old Jerry is that Negro. I believe he was a good soldier because he was a good and faithful slave. All this I am willing to swear to. It's interesting to hear from William Shares there, mm -hmm. and certainly what he thought. There's another point that you had sort of alluded to with, with Grant's view on seeing black men enter into the Army, and it's that he's looking at the longevity of this thing, looking mm -hmm. at where it will end up. And there's a quote here, um, I think you and I had discussed it, it's from Frederick Douglass. Mm -hmm. And he had been a proponent of the enlistment of black men into the Army really since the very beginning Right, of the he war. was pushing Lincoln right from the get-go. And he says, Once let the black man get upon his person the brass letters U.S., let him get an eagle on his button and a musket on his shoulder and bullets in his pocket, and there's no power on earth that can deny he has earned the right to citizenship of the United States. And yet, we'll see how this continues to, to progress and change. But Douglas is there right at the very beginning. Enlistments, though, for the, these black men, they go for all different reasons. It's, it's what we've talked about, about, about their own freedom, but it's, it's freedom for their own their families. And then the freedmen that are joining the Army are looking for that extension of, of citizenship. There is a New York Times article from March 7th, 1864, um, that I'd, I'd like to just read an excerpt of. So this comes from March 7th, 1864, and it is announcing the departure of the first colored regiment um, in the city, and it says, there has been no more striking manifestation of marvelous times that are upon us than the scene in our streets at the departure of our first of our colored regiments. Had any man predicted it last year, they would have been thought a fool, even by the wisest and most discerning. History abounds with strange contrasts. It has always been an ever-shifting melodrama, but never, in this land at least, has it presented a transition so extreme and yet so speedy as what our eyes have just behold. Eight months ago, the African race in the city were literally hunted down like wild beasts. They fled for their lives. When caught, they were shot down in cold blood or stoned to death or hung to trees and lampposts. Their homes were pillaged, the asylum which Christian charity had provided for their orphaned children was burned, and there was no limit to the persecution but in the physical impossibility of finding further material on which the mob could wreak its ruthless hate. 
Nor was it solely the raging horde in the streets that visited upon the black man the nefarious wrong. Thousands, tens of thousands of men of higher social grade, of better education, cherished precisely the same spirit. It found expression in contumelious speech rather than in violent act, but it was persecution nonetheless for that. In fact, the mob would never have entered upon the career of outrage but for the fact it was fired and maddened by the prejudice which had been generated by the ruling influences, civil and social, here in New York, till it had enveloped the city like some infernal atmosphere. The physical outrages which were inflicted on the black race in those terrible days were but the outburst of the most malignant agencies which had been transfusing the whole community from top to bottom year after year. How astonishingly has all this been changed. The men who could not have shown themselves in the most obscure street in the city without peril of instant death, even though in the most supplant attitude, now march in solid platoons with shouldered muskets, slung knapsacks, and buckled cartridge boxes down through our gayest avenues and our busiest thoroughfares to the peeling strains of martial music, and are everywhere saluted with waving handkerchiefs and with descending flowers, and with the acclamations and plaudits of countless beholders. They are halted at our most beautiful square and amid an admiring crowd in the presence of many of our most prominent citizens are addressed in an eloquent and most complimentary speech by the president of our chief literary institution and are presented with a gorgeous stand of colors in the names of a large number of the first ladies of the city who attest on parchment signed by their own fair hands that they will anxiously watch your career, glorying in your heroism, ministering to you when wounded and ill, and honoring your martyrdom with benediction and with tears. It is only by such occasions that we can at all realize the prodigious revolution which the public mind everywhere is experiencing. Such developments are infallible tokens of a new epoch. That's beautiful. And it's, it's this realization that the entire nation is having. It's almost like the first inklings of what comes next. Right. And now we're starting to see this sort of develop, and, th and that comes from uh, an incredible book which we'll talk about here towards the end. Uh, Dudley Taylor Cornish's Sable Arm. And there's a poetic eloquence when the U.S. Army enters Richmond near the end of the war because at the vanguard, in the very lead of that entrance, are USCT color troops. They are given the honor of leading the army into the city, and it's an extraordinary moment uh, to know that we've come so far. And there's, a, there's this, this almost shock amongst the citizenry of Richmond is that it's the last thing they expected to see. <laughs> right. Is you get these white citizens of Richmond that are just absolutely awestruck in the most negative possible sense. Mm -hmm. But then there's the formerly enslaved, now freed men and women that are looking free, at, least. at these men yeah. just absolutely gobsmacked mm -hmm. uh, because they represent that uh, there's a great book out now, it's called The Armies of Emancipation. That's exactly mm -hmm. what they are, the physical embodiment of it. There's a lot of references to the United States color troops throughout popular culture, and obviously one of the most um, maybe famous is the movie Glory, which depicts the 54th Massachusetts. Um, and that has sort of, that sort of propelled it into this national level where it's a, it's a talking point that's engaged with at historic sites all over the country uh, where these men saw action. But there are several other really incredible um, famous regiments, including uh, 
men that were originally called the Louisiana Native Guard, mm-hmm. uh, they are some of the very first black men to enlist into the United States Army. They're, they are the first men to see action. Um, there's the Battle of Milliken's Bend, uh, just part of the Vicksburg campaign, but there's also the Battle of Port Hudson, uh, where these men very heroically take part in the May 27th assault there to try and break these Confederate river fortifications there. The attack ultimately fails, but General Nathaniel Banks even recognizes what these men did. Uh, And the men that are around them, the white soldiers, realize, my God, they just took this attack in the teeth all day long. And yet they continued to fight. And they continued to throw themselves before those Confederate breastworks. We've talked a lot about the good uh, that we see, but they're... It's not all rosy for the These United States These men knew, troops. yeah, that they were taking a tremendous risk. Uh, well, in part, they were not treated on a parity with other soldiers. They were paid less. Mm-hmm. Their officers were almost entirely white uh, officers, so they were typically not given those opportunities. But the other thing is that they, because they were not going to be treated as prisoners of war, sometimes they were targeted. Sometimes yeah. the Confederate Army was so infuriated to see them across the field that they would target them and you know there are instances like Fort Pillow for example where surrendering soldiers are simply shot down and murdered and their officers their commanding officers even uh, were targeted sometimes for special vehemence by Mm -hmm. the Confederate Army. The discriminatory pay is is bad enough but if you look at the Confederate policy the sentiment in the north exists that black men could not be good soldiers, but the sentiment in the South, and it's codified by a Confederate law in uh, uh, May and, or April and May of 1863, uh, it's a series of resolutions that come out and they condemn the Union policy to emancipate and, quote, abduct such slaves or to incite them to insurrection or to employ Negroes against the Confederate states, end quote, and they deemed the enlistment of African Americans into the United States Army as, quote, inconsistent with the spirit of modern warfare between civilized nations, end quote. This is exactly what they say, is all Negroes and mulattoes who shall be engaged in the war or taken in arms against the Confederate States would be dealt with according to present and future law of such state or states. Essentially, re-enslavement or death, Mm -hmm. and white officers, death. Because they were basically thieves. They were basically stealing yeah, they were, to their way of thinking if their the, property. Uh, we, we go back to some of the talking points we've, we've had discussions about recently is the, the Fugitive Slave Acts. That's where they're drawing a lot of mm-hmm. this, this from is, is if you're an escaped slave, you go back into slavery. If you're a white man in command of a regiment, you're inciting a slave insurrection. Mm-hmm. And we all know that that is the greatest fear of slaveholders in the South mm-hmm. before and during the American Civil War is an uprising uh, on the level of, say, a Nat Turner revolt. Um, And that is one of the things that these men are going to have to face on a daily basis uh, while they fight throughout the entire rest of the war. So you had a couple of resources you wanted to suggest to us today, right? A couple of books? As uh, as usual, as always. Uh And I think it's something that I think we should try and do uh, in future episodes is we can listen uh, to this episode, and we can, you and I can sit here and record it. Uh, and people might listen to this 30 minute episode, mm-hmm. and that's good, but if you. It's just we, a starting point. We There's need to so keep much going. more to know, right. 
So some of the books that we'd like to recommend, and of course we have these available at the Carton, Carter House, and Ripa Villa Bookstore, uh, and you can order them online, is we have James McPherson's The Negro Civil War, Benjamin Corll's The Negro in the Civil War, and then finally another book that I have found to be incredibly informative, and it's also very revealing, um, is Dudley Taylor Cornish's The Sable Arm. One of the common myths that gets thrown out there is that nobody ever paid attention to the United States Colored Troops before the movie Glory, and it's this, somehow it's a revisionist idea that there were black men in the U.S. Army. Cornish wrote the book in 1956. He's Substantially one of, before the movie Glory yeah, comes out. Some 40 years, yeah. right? Uh, he is one of the first sort of academics to tackle the topic, and in fact, some of the reviews of his book show how dated the study was. T. Harry Williams, a professor at LSU, said it was superbly written, a major study on a neglected side of the war. Uh, Herman Hathaway says that the Sable Arm is a classic, a standard, and is justly earned uh, Dudley Taylor Cornish his status as a master in this subfield of history. It is an inspiring example of the best post-World War II Civil War scholarship. Wow. So this is that early on. It's already making an impact and changing uh, sort of our vision of what these men saw throughout the war. Mm-hmm. And then another great book, and we've just got it into the gift shop, is Invisible Wounds by Dylan Carroll. Uh, And Invisible Wounds is more or less a book about mental illness and Civil War soldiers, but he looks at the service of white and black soldiers and then their experiences in the post-war years um, and how they managed to cope with the trauma that they suffered throughout the war. So those are some incredible resources that we've got there. So, Sheila, do you have any last takeaways uh, for our listeners? Well, um, next week's episode, of course, is going to be connected to this one. It's going to be very complimentary. We're going to talk to a couple of local heroes here about the Fuller story. But um, some words from Lincoln. Lincoln said, uh, when speaking about the United States Colored Troops, and then there will be some black man who can remember that with silent tongue and clenched teeth and steady eye, and well-poised bayonet, they have helped mankind on to this great consummation. So he understood that it was going to be important, I think, to the African-American to have played his part in his own freedom, the freedom of his family, the freedom of those yet unborn, and it's an important story to tell. That's a great point. So we want to thank you, as always, for listening to The Dispatch, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust. We look forward to bringing you content, uh, and we are thankful for your support and listenership. Be sure to like, subscribe, drop us a review, let us know how we've done so far, and we look forward to many more episodes to come. See you on the battlefield.